Welcome back to the Cribsiders. We have a very special cross-posted episode today, the COVID vaccine. There's lots of questions, regardless if you're a patient, if you're a pediatrician, if you're an internist, family medicine doctor, or someone that works at a grocery store. We have an episode produced by the Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast that we are cross-posting. It has lots of great information. Be sure to check it out. Stay tuned. Enjoy the show. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Curbsiders, uh, this is probably jarring for you because this is normally uh, Matt Watto saying this part, and then normally he's getting interrupted, and you have neither of those things. But we've interrupted. That, that, there, thank you. That feels more like home. But I, I am joined by the amazing Chris Chu and Molly Hoyfine tonight, um, and we realize that Watto is dead weight, and we're doing just fine without him. So tonight's episode, <laughs> we're going to talk about the COVID nineteen vaccines with our guest expert, Dr. Monica Gandhi. Before we do that, I'd like to remind you that most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health, continuing education for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All I have to do is go to that website, sign up for an account. It is easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Uh, in just a moment, I'll, I'll let uh, the amazing Dr. Hoyblind tell us more about our guest and our topic. But before I do that, Chris, why don't you, this feels so weird to me. Why don't you remind me and the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Paul. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Uh oh, Paul. I think Chris is stealing your job. <laughs> I, know. You yeah, I feel like you didn't lean into the the heavily enough, but I mean that's just everyone's credit. The <laughs> Internal Medicine Podcast. So we had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Gandhi, tonight. Uh, Monica Gandhi, MD, MPH, is a professor of medicine and associate chief of the Division of HIV, Infectious Diseases, and Global Medicine at UCSF. She is also the director of the UCSF Center of AIDS Research, CIFAR, and the medical director of the HIV clinic, Ward 86, at the San Francisco General Hospital. Her research focuses on adherence measurements in HIV treatment and prevention, and she is now conducting research on mitigation strategies for COVID-19, including dissemination strategies for vaccines. So we had a really great conversation with her tonight. We talked about the new mRNA vaccines, as well as the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, we talked uh, about the trial data that has come out, the three, three phase three trials, um, as well as kind of how to counsel our patients about what to expect about the vaccines and then some ethical issues around vaccine rollout. So hopefully this is a helpful issue. I know I've been getting a ton of uh, questions from my patients and hopefully this answers your questions. All right. Well, without further ado, I guess we should go um, and insert horrendous pun. You had one, Chris. Please, anyone want to make a joke? He had one. He had one. We're going to give it our best shot. Oofa. All right. Great. Okay. Time to start recording. Well, hi, Dr. Gandhi. Thank you so much for joining us. I know this was short notice, and we really appreciate your time. Um, we like to get started with just some rapid fire questions to get you know to get to know you a little bit better. Um, but to start off, do you mind if we call you Monica for this recording? Please do. Please do. Thank you. So, could you give us a one liner to describe yourself? Um, so, I am energetic, uh, actually, and um, really passionate about infectious disease. I kind of think about it all the time. You are clearly energetic given all the things that you managed to accomplish. So, And tell us one 
non-medicine hobby or one thing that you actually do to relax or uh um, so i have just... two beautiful um boys who are 10 and 12 but i also have a hilarious little dog named frodo and uh frodo is <laughs> um really trying to get that ring into mordor right now because like it just seems like We've gone through such hard times, and maybe if he can just get that little ring in there, things could get better. Um, so that's what I'm hoping. And then I am a big reader of uh, fiction. So I, uh, two questions um, for me. So first of all, is the, is the necktie that, that Frodo is wearing, is that specifically for the show, or is that part of his everyday Yeah, time? I mean, you know, we knew this was a really important program, and <laughs> he just thought, you know, he thought like a tux was a little too much, so he's wearing just kind of one of an everyday necktie for the program. No, I, I appreciate his style sense, and I'm, I'm glad that some of us are taking this seriously. That's excellent. <laughs> I guess the other question, just and you did mention that you like to read uh, fiction. You, I see just a wall of books behind you, so I, I'm always open for a book recommendation. I feel like I'm practically caught up at this point, thanks to quarantine. So it doesn't have to be medicine-related at all. Just give me a book recommendation, something you read recently you like. What I just finished was The Vanishing Half, um, which was about two twins who were actually of mixed race. And one chose to live completely as a white person, violated her whole family to do so. And the reason it's interesting is uh, it's a very new take on race relations, right, to do it through this way. So it was amazing. Wow. I just right. finished that a couple of days ago and it was amazing. Yeah, my our baby gets up every day at 430. So I really try to go to bed <laughs> early and I could not put that down. And I was like, oh, I have to go to bed, but I have to finish. <laughs> yeah, so that I would recommend it. Excellent. So my favorite question to ask is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Uh, actually, it has to do with your field, which is pediatrics. So I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician and I got I didn't get um, the honors on the pediatrics uh, uh, rotation. I, I don't know what. And um, I, I cried and cried. I like thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. And then um, it was a good failure because I really didn't want to be a pediatrician. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I, I sorry. I mean, I didn't want to like, you know make children cry. I've been swabbing some children for these testing campaigns and I invariably make their nasal swab. I make them cry and I'm glad I didn't end up there. So I learned a lot from it. That's a good one. Although I think there are quite a few adults who cry from their nasal swabs too. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on how far you go. Yes. <laughs> and do you have a frivolous thing that you're most looking forward to when quarantine is over or something that you're just really missing being able to do? Yeah. I mean, I um, actually have been writing on face masks. Um, but I hate face masks. So I actually really want to like take it off. And um, just I want to travel. Yeah, I, this is such a lonely, hard time. So I am, I'm going to like immediately go somewhere excellent. I don't even know, like Las Vegas, somewhere crazy where you just have to be around a lot of people. <laughs> Sounds like a good one. I, I might steal that when all oh, this is over too. Our sponsor today is Panacea Financial, the financial remedy for doctors created by doctors. With nationwide digital banking, Panacea Financial provides physicians and medical students with free checking, a personal banker, around-the-clock customer support, and loans designed with you in mind. No one should borrow money more than they need, but with Panacea Financial, physicians and physicians in training can get money as needed in as little as 24 hours with their PRN personal loan. It has an interest rate that is less than half the average credit card, no cosigner requirement, and a fully digital application. Instead of running up credit card debt, try their PRN personal loan that is designed to give you a better way to cover expenses such as relocation, board exams, or even home renovations. In addition, physicians in training can have a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. Go to PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn more. 
Panacea Financial is a division of Sonobank and member FDIC. Well, all right. So I, I think why don't we we'll defer picks of the week, uh, if that's okay, unless anyone had a, a burning thing that they wanted to share. And why don't we actually transition right into a case um, from Cash Like Hospital? And Molly, why don't you why don't you lead us off? Absolutely. So we have uh, Maria. She's a 35-year-old woman, and she is coming in and wants to ask if uh, what you think about getting the COVID vaccine. So kind of to take a step back, what are the currently approved COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S.? So right now, and it's really interesting, the word approved is not the right word. They're actually <laughs> called authorized. So um, someone corrected me on that very sternly. But th- So they're under emergency use authorization, and we have two um, in this country three in other parts of the world. And uh, they are what are commonly known as the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is one, and the second is the Moderna. And those are the only two vaccines that we have authorization for in this country. And they're both very similar. Now, there is um, a couple other vaccines that you said in some other countries. I know there's the the one from, is it University of Oxford, AstraZeneca one, but that's a little different from the ones that have been approved for emergency use in the U.S. Is that right? Yes. So there's actually three approved worldwide if you want to say, um, you know, that there's more than one. And then there's some in, there's one in Russia and one in China um, that we don't know as much about. The third one, like you said, is the University of Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And it does have a different mechanism of action than those first two, the Pfizer and the Moderna. Um, it's an, it's a, it's a adenovirus. So it's like a, it's a very benign cold virus from a primate. Um, and inside that adenovirus, which really becomes the vector to bring it into your body, is um, is DNA, DNA that codes for the spike protein of COVID-19. Um, and so it is a different technology. It's only approved in the UK and India, but um, there are some major advantages to it. Uh, but it hasn't yet been authorized here, partially because there were some very weird things about the trial, which I can get into. Which I think we'd love to hear about. And then I think you mentioned sort of the mechanism of action of, of the big two that I think we're most familiar with being the mRNA vaccines, which I think a lot of hay has been made about. Can you mind just sort of talking us through exactly how that works and how it's different from vaccines that we, we typically use? Yeah, there's never been a vaccine for a pathogen before um, that, uh, that uses this mechanism that the Pfizer, BioNTech, and the Moderna one do, which is called an mRNA vaccine. So it's, it's, um, it's you know, messenger RNA that uh, is codes for the spike protein, and it's embedded in this lipid bilayer. And so you inject it in the arm, it very easily, because our cells, of course, are, um, you know, have a lipid um, interface, uh, merges with our cell and releases mRNA into our host cells. And then the translational machinery of our cells is harnessed to make protein. You know, that mRNA goes through our ribosomes and goes through the endoplasmic reticulum, just like any mRNA would. And then we make our cells make the spike protein in bounds, like lots of it. Um, and it's really efficient. And then your body is like, oh, I've never seen the spike protein before. And then it will trigger the appropriate immune response, both antibodies and a T cell response against the spike protein. So it's super unique, never been used before. It has been used for tumor vaccines, um, but not for a pathogen. And it's pretty amazing technology. Usually vaccines are like bits of protein from the uh, virus um, or the bacteria, or it is even a live attenuated form of that pathogen. Um, but to, to, to take mRNA and put it in a lipid bilayer, really unique and uh, very exciting. 
And then the AstraZeneca um, is different, actually. It's more along the lines of how HIV vaccines we've been trying to develop for a long time. But it's taking a virus as the vector, benign virus, this cold virus, adenovirus causes colds and chimps, and it brings it into the cell. Um, So the adenovirus gets injected. Inside it has DNA, not mRNA. Um, but it's the DNA that codes for the spike protein. And then it's essentially that DNA gets incorporated into your, into essentially that DNA is coded eventually into mRNA in your body. And then you go ahead and produce protein. So it is, um, by the way, the virus doesn't replicate in your body. Um, so the adenovirus, you don't even get a cold from it. Um, and that has been explored before an adenovirus vector. Actually, we're really super familiar with that in HIV. We keep on trying it. Um, and it's never worked. So that that is not as novel of a technology. I feel like it's it's almost the novel nature that is making some people maybe a little bit nervous. I think intuitively it makes sense that you put a piece of something into the body, the body says that doesn't belong there, and then it gets excited and builds an immune response. Like I feel like that's fairly understandable for a simpleton like myself. But the mRNA, it's it's compli- it seems more complicated. It's exciting and it's interesting, but also the fact that it's so novel, I think, makes people a little bit nervous about it. So I, I guess. The first question, why don't we start with why it's working now if it's been something that we've looked at before? So I guess that's a good place to start. So why are these vaccines effective with this mechanism when prior vaccines attempting it have not been, have not seemed to have caught on? You know, um, they've, it's only been attempted really for tumor vaccines and tumor vaccines have notoriously been more difficult, obviously, to develop because the tumor has elements that look like yourself. Um, so this is the first time you're right that it's been used for a pathogen. However, um, there's this Onion article, actually, I'm sure you all saw, it, but it's like someone hitting their forehead and saying, oh, my gosh, the answer was here all along, a lipid biolayer with an mRNA in there. And, <laughs> right. you know, like like we could have done this. Like, um, So it is it is really amazing. It is really new technology. However, I think its simplicity is what, for me, makes it seem so safe. And what I mean by that is when you inject, you know, of course, if you inject a live attenuated vaccine, there's always this chance of going back to the real, um, you know, virus. Um, And we've seen some very terrible uh, examples of that in in the case of measles vaccine, for example, subacute causing panencephalitis that could occur very later on. We don't give live attenuated vaccines for pregnant women or immunocompromised individuals. And so that's one mechanism. And then if you give a protein, you had to give it so often. Like, so if you think of, um, if you think of uh, some vaccinations, you are just giving it so often and you often, you have to give a booster. So it's kind of ingenious to think, well, instead of giving like a piece of the protein, I'm going to give a piece of the genetic material that harnesses your very own system to produce scads of the protein. I think that's just such a unique idea. Um, and, uh, and then you produce so much protein that the immune response is quite robust. Now it's not robust enough, unfortunately, to have given it as a single dose. And I do think that's a really important point that think of any vaccine in the world, like that it is, it is usually we need more than one dose because you're sort of generating this immune response. You're starting to form your memory cells. And then if it gets re-stimulated with the second dose, then you get a really strong and robust memory immune response. So um, I don't think we're ever going to get away. Um, and we can we can later in this in this if you if you want we can talk about the conversations that are coming about uh, out about delaying the second dose. But we're uh, which I actually approve of. But we're not going to get away with uh, not giving two doses um, for these two 
mRNA vaccines. And that is true of the AstraZeneca as well. It is also a dual, it's a two-dose vaccine. Can you speak a little bit, um, I've heard a lot about the manufacture and distribution of these mRNA vaccines. So as mRNA vac vaccine, you don't need like a chicken egg to culture. And so production can be a lot faster, but then there are some distribution issues in terms of freezing. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, for anyone who has worked um, in a lab and undergraduate, for example, and you worked with genetic material, <laughs> you remembered how kind of unstable it is. Um, people are like, oh, you're so brave to work with RNA because um, it actually has to be kept super cold. So that is the issue. And that is why AstraZeneca, um, there are going to be advantages to it. So the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine uh, has to be kept at negative 70 uh, at all times. And if you think about like what's in your house, that's a two to eight degree fridge. I mean, sometimes people put it down to one, but that's a typically a four degree fridge. So if you think about all your clinics out there, many of us have clinics with fridges to store samples or urine or whatever, but that, that's at four degrees. Negative 70 is what you'd have in a research laboratory. So it really is really freezing. And so it brings in this complexity of having to ship it on dry ice, having it in these special containers that have dry ice, bringing up the expense of it. The one good thing, and that's Pfizer-BioNTech period, like negative 70 period. You know, there was a story in Ukiah yesterday that they were going to lose their vaccine because, um, because it was getting too warm and they like quickly vaccinated 850 people. You just can't let it get warm. Now, the Moderna has advantages, and I don't know if, if the Pfizer just didn't study it or there's something inherent about the Moderna that is more stable. It can be stored at for longer at higher temperatures. So it can be stored at negative 20 degrees for six months, which negative 20s, you don't really have those sitting around either, but it can be stored in a regular fridge, four degrees for 30 days. To me, that is, you know, that really involve that really will allow for full distribution of vaccines or like using a cooler in a mass vaccination campaign or being out in a field because I am really envisioning and hoping that we're going to have fields and parks and convention centers and people getting mass vaccination when we open it up to phase 1B. So the Moderna has that advantage, but the AstraZeneca can be in a regular fridge for like kind of indefinitely. Um, six months uh, is how long they've studied it. So that does have advantages in rural settings and in other places where 30 days may not be enough. And once the vaccine's actually given, when I originally heard about this new technology a couple months ago, it, it honestly sounded a little creepy to me. I mean, we're injecting foreign DNA or RNA, but it sounds like it, it really degrades pretty quickly and it doesn't enter the nucleus. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, that is the best part is that like, I always think about HIV as a virus that goes in and intercalates into your chromosome and you can never get it out. This is literally an mRNA that goes straight to the cytoplasm, goes to your your ribosomes, you know, use their translation magic and make it into protein. And then it's in, it, in and of itself, like all mRNA, it just immediately degrades. So when I think about pregnant women, which we can certainly talk about, I know your patient is 35. I don't know her. Um, interest in childbearing, but it's very reassuring to me that it's never going to stay around in your body. And uh, so it is, it degrades quickly. I can't imagine a scenario where the, you'd have long-term scary genetic side effects from it, you know? And so I feel very secure about its safety. Yeah. I mean, the, the research data looks very, very exciting um, in terms of just how effective it is. Um, when Chris and I were kind of talking beforehand, he sort of had a question about efficacy versus effectiveness. Was that your, your phrasing? 
Yeah, is I've heard both praises and saying and in in some of the literature and saying that they're not the same. And I was wondering whether you would be able to speak to that if there is a difference in how what that means. Yeah, I mean, actually, so you know that phrase in general usually refers to sort of efficacy and is is in a phase three trial and effectiveness is as we roll it out to put it really sort of simply. But there is a weird aspect about this in what they decided their endpoint was that has led to some confusion about it, right? Because both the Pfizer-BioNTech and the Moderna trial, they started up in like July and they got their results in November. So it was really fast. However, to have that sort of uh, expediency which I think was necessary given the nature of the pandemic, there were shortcuts taken. And one shortcut that was taken is that the kind of one bizarre aspect of SARS-CoV-2 is that we know that you can have asymptomatic infection. You can feel perfectly fine and be shedding the virus in high rates from your nose and mouth. And that's fundamentally the crux of the problem with this virus. It's why it spreads so quickly. It's why we need face masks. It's why one person can carry it and be fine and they can give it to someone who's more vulnerable and they can get really sick. And that particular outcome of um, just being infected in general was not an outcome of either the Moderna and F or Pfizer study. It was an outcome of the AstraZeneca trial, but we'll talk about that. So the outcome that was looked at was specifically developing symptomatic COVID-19. And how would you know if you were symptomatic? People like reported in, hey, I don't feel well. Oh, really? Okay, come in and get swabbed. So there was not routine swabbing that occurred that we do, for example, in schools for teachers, uh, it wasn't routine swabbing at all. It was like, if you don't feel well, come in and we're going to test you for COVID. And so in the Pfizer-BioNTech study of 170 people who ended up being tested and they had COVID-19, 162 were in the placebo arm and eight were in the vaccine arm. And so that is a 95% effective rate, meaning, you know, not many people had symptomatic COVID in the vaccine arm. They, most of the symptomatic COVID was in the placebo arm, but it doesn't actually necessarily tell you if you have asymptomatic infection. Say you were, many of these patients were high risk, especially in the Moderna. And by high risk, I mean like healthcare workers, essential workers, they were out, they had to be working. And so you could have been infected, but you would never know if you're asymptomatic. And going along with that symptomatic outcome, because I think that's a really important outcome. We don't want people to get sick. But the, I, I loved this second, other secondary outcome, which was having severe disease. Of course, as physicians, that's what we really care about. And almost all of the people in all three trials who actually had severe disease, there were four in the Pfizer trial who had severe disease, and almost three out of four were in the placebo. Um, and in the Moderna trial, there were um, 30 people who had severe disease, and all of them, all of them were in the placebo group, so zero severe disease in the vaccine group. And then in the AstraZeneca trial, looks like there were 30 as well severe outcomes, and all of them were in the placebo group. So I love this idea that like the most important thing to prevent severe illness this vaccine works amazingly. It works really well for symptomatic disease. And I actually am going to make the assumption, and I'll tell you about that with the AstraZeneca, that it actually prevents asymptomatic infection. But that wasn't proven in the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine trial. So one of the things that I, I'm taking away from this already are just sort of scripts for people who are maybe hesitant to consider vaccination. So you've given, what is it going to prevent exactly? So that was incredibly helpful to go through. You talked about the, the new technology and how it's, it's not that new and also how it's relatively benign and seems very effective. And I, I think 
I wonder if you wouldn't help me with a script for the people who are concerned about how quickly this came about. You know, we hear about, you know, drugs and vaccines and really any kind of medical treatments taking years and years and years to come together. And I feel like some of the, I don't want to say conspiracy minded, but the people who are nervous about things just feel like this feels markedly different because it seemed to have happened so quickly. Do you have something that you tell patients when they raise that specific concern? Yes. What I say to them is in 1918, when they were trying to develop an influenza vaccine, it was 1918. We are in 2020. The entire world was focused on getting a vaccine. You take everyone in the world who has any ability to produce something and they all put their minds to a problem. It's this stopped the world in its track. And also there was precedent for mRNA vaccines. They just hadn't been developed, but they had been thought about, like you said, for a while, for, for influenza, for Zika, for rabies, actually for MERS, um, another coronavirus. But MERS kind of went away on its own. So they, the technology was actually already there. And then you kind of give this challenge to the whole world, like, do you want to get us out of the misery and get win a Nobel Prize and become the most famous person ever? Yes, like people are going to be on it. Um, and and it and it went through. I mean, we're in the year 2020, and um, I think it it went really fast because we're in a highly technological age. We had precedent. People, there was never there wasn't a real issue to use it for influenza. We have other ways to do influenza. There was no hurry. Now there was a huge hurry, and why not use this incredible technology? So. Um, I do not think it was, I mean, I, it was developed fast and I just found that, found that an amazing kind of the amazing power of technology science and how miserable we are all are because until we get mass vaccination, uh, the world is just on hold, uh, and it is just affecting every facet of society. I now, love that answer. Oh, sorry, Chris, go ahead. Yeah. And I was just going to say that, you know, so one of the th reasons why I heard we, we were able to fast track this so fast is because with the different phases in the trial and we where obviously the EUA was approved after phase three trials was that um, each phase, each, each trial phase actually overlapped instead of doing it subsequently. Is that correct? Yeah. So if you, I think that's a great point. So the first step was actually phase one, seeing if, if, if this mRNA1273, for example, which, which is the official name of the Moderna vaccine triggered immunogenicity, and it did. And right as soon as that was noticed, okay, then we'll go into phase two and see what's the right dose. And then as soon as the dose didn't, you know, cause too many side effects, okay, let's go right into phase three and start giving it out to people. The other thing is that if you look at the endpoints, there were some shortcuts taken, and I, I can't. Again, I, I cannot blame them. I'm so delighted to have these vaccines that. I'm amazingly grateful, but I, I think, you know, what, what kind of shortcuts? Well, they didn't swab everyone um, weekly in the, um, in the uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, or the Moderna phase three trials. They did in AstraZeneca, and I'll tell you about that. And so we don't know if it prevents asymptomatic infection. Again, biologically, it actually makes sense that it would prevent asymptomatic infection. But when you hear people say, wear masks and still distance until everyone around you is vaccinated, I think that's frankly a fair point until we can ensure that the other person that we're wearing a mask in front of is vaccinated as well, because there is this possibility. So that was one shortcut. Second shortcut was um, to give three weeks between doses was probably speeding it up a little bit. I, there's been, I'd love to talk about this if we had time, uh, this controversy that's, uh, that's uh, circulating right now about if you can delay the second dose. I actually think usually delaying the second dose creates more immunogenicity. This is just true for many viruses. We actually care 
way more um, if someone comes in too short of an interval versus too long of an interval. It's why we don't start childhood vaccinations all over again. If someone missed a year, we're like, okay, we'll just take take you where you left off. Same thing with hepatitis B. So there's something good about delaying time between two shots. And I'd love to tell you a little more about AstraZeneca to explain that I think that that AstraZeneca trial really showed that. And because of that, um, but giving it every th- giving it three weeks or four weeks was another shortcut. Probably it would have been like 12 weeks if we had all the time in the world. And then the other shortcut was that these outcomes were given just two weeks after receiving the second dose, which is pretty fast. Um, and so the fact that we have such amazing outcomes means these are amazing vaccines. All right. I feel like You've been teasing the AstraZeneca trial for the, the first half. I really, episode, right? I've been hinting that I want to tell you two things. I'm such a loose. Tell us about it. I'm excited to hear. Okay. I really had wanted to tell you something about the AstraZeneca trials because um, I think they give us hints about what we can expect from the Pfizer Moderna. Because frankly, those trials, though they've been criticized, did some things really well. So one thing is that the Lancet paper, which was on December 8th, which published the literature on um, the trials so far, the AstraZeneca trial, and it was in the UK, Brazil, and um, United States. That data that was given to us is kind of halfway through the phase three trials. And they did a couple of things that were great. They swabbed everyone every week. So then you really could say, okay, well, and they had them self-swab. Um, so then you could really say, okay, does it reduce asymptomatic infection? Okay, why would anyone even dream of this? Because in influenza, you don't really have asymptomatic infection. Um, the reason that we, we need to do this swabbing and it's important is that it's possible that a antibody response or a T-cell response can minimize symptoms of an infection, but not totally block the infection, which is why in the past we were wondering if COVID antibodies to other coronaviruses, not COVID antibodies, but antibodies to other coronaviruses were conferring some protective immunity against getting symptomatic COVID. Um, so even though you think, oh, it totally block infection, there's still an idea that maybe these antibody responses wouldn't, and you could still get asymptomatic disease and you could still pass it on to people. So the AstraZeneca did things right. They actually swabbed everyone every week. And one thing that came out that I think is really important is that AstraZeneca also decreased the rate of asymptomatic infection by 59%. So I'm going to assume and extrapolate that that's true of all these vaccines. The second thing that it did weirdly, and it was like an accident, and that's why people have been kind of suspicious about it, is that in the UK, they accidentally gave um, half, uh, they gave people the ha- a half dose and then a full dose. It was an accident. And they noticed that they had given them half dose because no one was having side effects from the half dose. And then they noticed <laughs> that. And then they said, oops, you got a half dose, full dose. It turned out that that dosing regimen was actually more effective um, for those individuals. That, that dosing regimen gave an effectiveness rate of 90%, whereas it was 62% in people who got full dose, full dose, for a combined um, effectiveness of 70%. Now, um, I will say one thing that just came out, um, and it wasn't actually in the Lancet paper, but it just came out from the data that the UK had reviewed that allowed them to pass the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, which is that the people who got half dose, full dose, actually were more likely to have a very long period between doses because there was all these mistakes made and they're like, oh. And so actually it was 12, on average, they had a longer period between doses. And what the investigators are speculating about is it was likely that, that, that increased spacing between doses that led to the increased immunogenicity of the half dose, full dose. 
And in fact, the UK approved it for 12 weeks between doses. And so when we're having this argument about Moderna and Pfizer vaccine that like, oh gosh, we have to give it between, you have to give it three and four weeks respectively, maybe extending it if we extrapolate from AstraZeneca would not be a big problem in terms of immunogenicity. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. That trial sounds like a mess. I just, I can't imagine <laughs> trying to pull it. Like it's, like, oops, daisy that was a half dose. Now we're adjusting the time frame. Like I think just analyzing the data, there's some, probably a, a room full of statisticians just losing their minds. I hopefully socially distant. <laughs> <laughs> I think they work. I think they work. I mean, the, the other good thing when you um, have people who are like uh, questioning about the data is that uh, the AstraZeneca was published on December 8th in Lancet and the Moderna and the Pfizer-BioNTech data were published on the December 30th in the New England Journal. Like we have full peer-reviewed data to look at. We have 54-page documents, 100-page documents that were submitted to the FDA. Like there is a lot of data there. You know, these are these are well done uh, studies and we can all look at the data and feel comfortable with it. So I just, I'm like, this is like the only good thing happening in the world right now. So let's love these vaccines. <laughs> Focus on it. Is, does it look likely that the AstraZeneca vaccine will be approved in the U.S. or authorized? You know, um, I am, I'm a little concerned that it won't be because, um, not yet, because of this, it, it did look kind of fishy with the half dose, full dose, and then like it was a mistake and they admitted it was a mistake. And then Beyond that, that somehow the only people who got half dose, full dose were less than 55. And so the the United States, yeah, so it wasn't given <laughs> to anyone who was older than 65. So the United States AstraZeneca trial is ongoing. The, U, the U.S. FDA is not going to authorize it until we're done with the United States AstraZeneca trial. And that will be done in uh, by March. Should we move on to what's going on with Maria? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I actually just have one other question. Are yeah. we hopefully going to get the data at some point soonish around Pfizer and Moderna if it does prevent asymptomatic spread? Yeah, I mean, it did, so it wasn't, it literally wasn't in the design. I mean, you can't go back and yeah. get swaps. However, they have promised in quote phase four, phase four means rollout, um, to take segments of the population and swab them. And then okay. we'll be able to see if it's if asymptomatic infection is ruled out. So, like for example, healthcare workers, like a bunch of people are getting swabbed, and so we'll be able to know that soon. Yeah, because that would be wonderful to take off our masks and yeah, our goggles. And <laughs> I mean, I honestly, you know, the thing is, and I, I really, you know, it's it's a very interesting thing. Like if I was in a social gathering and the two people had been vaccinated, I think you can be very comfortable taking them off. I mean, it's just the truth. But the issue is that we're at the beginning of this rollout and all of our patients haven't gotten vaccinated yet. And so, yeah, we have to keep it on for now, even though we most likely won't pass it on, but we just can't know for sure. Great. So coming back to the case, uh, Maria from Cashlack, um, we were talking to her a little bit more and in reviewing her history, we find out she's on Humira for psoriasis. And she has a history to anaphylaxis to peanuts. Um, she's considering pregnancy in the next few months. And should we still recommend that she gets vaccinated? So I know that's a lot of different uh, <laughs> qualifications there. But just to kind of talk about what certain populations maybe should not receive the vaccine at this point. No, yeah, I love how these cases, they just like have everything. So, um, yes. <laughs> so, you know, at this current moment, there's not a single population that probably should not receive it. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that all these groups were studied uh, in the trial. So pregnancy was actually excluded from trial participation. 
um, which is, you know, a huge oversight, by the way, just because, you know, the FDA has been saying for years that pregnant and breastfeeding women should be included in such studies. And then um, they let it pass that that was an exclusion criterion. But um, but on the other hand, the reason I would not be concerned about pregnancy is because when I think about all the things that we just talked about, the mRNA degrading quickly, it's never going to intercalate anywhere. It's not going to be able to go and, you know, across to the fetus. It's um, the uh, protein is really specific, meaning there isn't anything about the spike protein that looks like a human element so that you, when you produce antibodies against the spike protein, we haven't seen people having autoimmune reactions to natural immunity, for example. So there's just a lot good about the idea that pregnancy, I, I would really approve it and, and encourage pregnant patients to get it. And then the idea, of course, that SARS-CoV-2 is not a good thing to get for pregnant women. There is some evidence that there are more severe outcomes in pregnancy. So all that combined, I would advise pregnant women to get it with the caveat that we didn't enroll them in trials. And I'm very sad about that. In terms of HIV or Humira or being on immunosuppressants, again, there was no subgroup that was big enough to like stratify to say, Oh, does it work as well in HIV? I think there was like 176 people enrolled in the 43,000 Pfizer-BioNTech trial with HIV. Um, but there's just no biological reason to think that it wouldn't work as well. And in fact, as you, um, I mean, you know, immunocompromised to a certain degree, and it actually depends on the, what immunocompromise you have, can predispose you to worse outcomes with SARS-CoV-2. So I would encourage immunization of those uh, individuals quickly. And then what was her third thing that she had besides humor? Uh, that she has a history of anaphylaxis. Yeah, I mean, that's actually really important. So, um, so you know, the anaphylaxis issue was really interesting. Um, and it was raised not in the trial. So I actually went back and looked at the really long documents that were submitted to the FDA and really saw there was no hypersensitivity reactions in about 21,000 people in Pfizer and 16,000 people in Moderna who got either of these vaccines, no anaphylaxis. So then you think there's not going to be no anaphylaxis. And then it just happened to be like among the first healthcare workers, there was a couple of episodes of anaphylaxis. I mean, that was really dramatic because it was kind of coincidental. It was just when people were getting so much attention on the vaccines. We haven't seen a lot of those anaphylaxis since. There's been a total of four um, that I know of. So it's not like it's really that common. We've given out now, there are millions of doses that have been given out. So it's not at all common. It just was, you know, it just happened in a dramatic way. And so you think that anaphylaxis is more highly associated with these vaccines. And um, the CDC put a caveat on them and said you should sit in the doctor's office and wait for 15 minutes after your vaccine. And in fact, wait for 30 minutes if you have a history of anaphylaxis to any vaccine or injectable. I think that's overkill given what we've seen now. Um, and I think for people like healthcare workers who likely have enough knowledge, I would probably let them leave right away. Um, and, you know, they have the knowledge to worry, to be concerned about that. And in addition, peanuts or seafood or chicken or egg allergies don't seem to be have anything to do with those couple of cases of anaphylaxis. In fact, it's not that at all. It's um, it's more, we think it could have something to do with the PEG, um, which is a, a polyethylene glycol that was in the, that's what's being looked at at least that was in the vaccine formulation. So someone who has a peanut allergy, I'm not worried about them at all. So my question is about, and, and this is a question that I'm getting a lot of, um, with our patients, you know, cause we're nearly a year into this infection course. I have patients who had COVID at the beginning of the course, or even more recently, I have healthcare workers who, um, actually I had a healthcare worker who had the COVID vaccine, was diagnosed with COVID a couple of days later because she probably 
got it somewhere else and now doesn't know what to do about the second dose. Although I think I, I know what you're going to say about that. Uh, what, what do we do with our patients who've previously had COVID? What do we tell them about the vaccine? Yeah, I mean, you know, the ACIP CDC recommendation said really clearly that if you've had COVID, please try to go more to the back of the line um, because they actually said 90 days, but there was an amazing study in the New England Journal uh, just last week um, about healthcare workers who've had COVID and antibody protection lasts at least six months. So if right now the CDC recommendation is to wait three months uh, before getting it, not because there's any like severe reaction to yourself, but kind of out of altruism that we need to, we need to, you know, reserve doses for people who need it. And you are protected if you've had natural COVID, you have natural um, immunity for at least three months, more, more likely six months, and even more likely longer. Why do we only have it out to six months? We haven't had this this long. We're going to keep on looking. It's probably much longer. So I would really hope, um, you know, the healthcare workers or others who have had COVID could please wait um, 90 days after their COVID so that like their fellow teacher could get it or fellow healthcare worker could get it. And we'll, we'll get to the side effects or the possible side effects of the vaccination later on. But, in, but since we're on this topic now of patients who've been, who have previous COVID infection, are we seeing increased side effect responses with vaccination with those patients? Or is that not a population we've looked at? Since they already, are they having more immunogenicity and just feeling kind of crappier after the vaccinations? Or is that not something we're seeing necessarily? That's actually a great, great question. Because as you know, um, there are many people who don't know that they've had COVID. And so there are actually some pretty, I mean, to be fair, there's probably more adverse uh, injection site reactions to especially the Moderna vaccine than there are to um, influenza vaccine. And um, it is, they did not rule out, well, okay. So in that infection, they did, they, in the trial, they did stratify if you had had prior SARS-CoV-2 infection or not. And there wasn't, a, there wasn't at least in the small number of people that had SARS-CoV-2 more of an injection site reaction. But in the world, I, it's a great question if people who have more severe side effects could be having a, a more profound, because anytime you get boosted with a vaccine or even seeing the natural infection, you have a very robust immune response, and maybe that's causing more severe side effects. That's very interesting. I have I'm not thought about that, but at least what they looked at in the trials, because they did know some people who had had COVID, it did not look like they had more severe side effects. And maybe we could jump into those side effects. What what do we counsel patients that they should expect after the first dose and then after the second dose? You know, um, I I yeah, I think it is fair to say that there are probably more side effects with this than influenza with both of these mRNA vaccines. And the most common side effects were injection site reactions, and they were up to ninety four percent of people in the Moderna trial after the second dose. So it's pretty, it's really really common. But they're not severe, meaning not that many people really called it severe. And even either whether you what's called solicited or unsolicited. So there was solicited and unsolicited. Like, did you get an injection site reaction? They're more likely to say yes. But even unsolicited people describe the pain. So there is going to be some pain. And, you know, this whole Tylenol, acetaminophen after vaccines, probably not before based on, you would know more, Chris, based on the pediatric data. I think we don't give some theoretical aspect about acetaminophen before in kids, but uh, in children, but um, people, plenty, 20% of people took antipyretics after the Moderna vaccine. The others that were more common, but still not that common were fatigue and fever and headache. So those three, 
And again, not that common and not that bad. Like the severe side effects were very rare, but a fair amount of people said they had fatigue. And I mean, anecdotally, I've had like some health coworkers around me. They're like, oh, I, I fell asleep after my vaccine for like like two hours and um, and it really hurt. So I don't know. I'm sure you guys are hearing the same thing, but I do. I think it's a little different than influenza. It's a little more. I like it because I think it means it's working. And I think you can take antipyretics. And I think the main thing to remember is nothing was very severe. Nothing was too bad. And I genuinely don't think, for example, they were like rotating them. So like some people in the ER got it and others didn't just in case you had to be at home, you know, after getting the vaccine. This is in no way that bad. Like it's you can totally work with it usually. Although I would say from anecdotal evidence, I had a colleague who got his got his second dose and unfortunately, he spiked a fever that night and he couldn't go into work in the ICU the next day because he had to be fever free for 24 hours before he could go to work. So they did. So, you know, I think that's something that different departments have at least are trying to keep in mind to know that that can happen. So I think that's fair. And you're absolutely right that instead of like things getting better after the second dose, they're worse for all for both both of them, that there are higher rate of side effects after the second. It's fine because I, I have not not been fatigued since probably February of last year. I'm not even sure I know. Like, I think I noticed if I stopped being fatigued more so than feeling tired. Yeah, actually, um, that's so true. I have a chronic headache. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, <you're right. laughs> I think it was like 30% of the people in the placebo group had a headache, too. So you're not alone. So, that <laughs> is very alone. fair. The problem with many of these trials, including not, uh, these trials naturally, is you you um, you solicit them. You ask them if they've had it. And like, yeah, people are like people are miserable right now. So, yeah, they had side effects. Right. That's a very fair point. Do you mind if I put my peds hat on for a second? Um, so, you know, these, <laughs> remember, I didn't get an honors. <laughs> so you're the so enemy, I, Chris. I know, I know. And, and, and I know that, um, for at least the big trials, the phase three trials for these three big vaccines, the two mRNA, and then the AstraZeneca trial, they, they really excluded basically all pediatric populations. I think the Pfizer trial did go up to go down to like 16 year old or Moderna. I can't remember. One of them went down to 16 year old, but by and large, they, they excluded pediatrics um do you have any idea if they're doing pediatric trials or and what to expect on that and in terms of like trying to reach a herd immunity for like our general population is it important to get these children immunized in the future no this is a great question so in the middle of the pfizer trial um it got approved to go down to 12 but by the time age of 12 but by the time there was approval given it just was too late and the and the youngest age was 16 and then same in the moderna um and so what happened is that this is now currently both vaccines have only been approved for 16 and older there has been an approval to go forward for pediatric immunization trials and hopefully they'll enroll. There's some concern that they um, may not enroll as readily because parents uh, are more, uh, in general, this is not an infection that uh, has as much of a devastating effect on children. And people often weigh lots of things when they decide to enroll their, their child into a vaccine trial. So, um, so right now, only till 16. So then the way that the CDC has designed the rollout is there's phase 1A, 1B, 1C, and 2. And 1A is, of course, healthcare workers and long-term care facilities and staff in those long-term care facilities. 1B is age over 75 years old equals or older, and also um, really frontline essential workers like grocery store clerks and public transit workers and teachers and educators. 
and people who are out, um, food and agriculture, meat processing plants. And then phase 1C is 65 to 74, just period, or 65 to 74, age 16 to 64, if you have a pre-existing condition. And then all the other essential workers, like people who are out more, like media or communications or IT or waterworks. And then two is everyone else. And two means anyone over the age of 16. And so you're right that the way that the current scheme works is a child who's 8, 10, 12 will not be vaccinated by uh, these uh, vaccines in this country. It doesn't mean that these trials won't enroll and they won't go forward, and hopefully they will. They were approved for the child vaccines. And and there may be many people who will say, you look like you're 16, you know, like, I'm just going to give this to you. Like, you know, there may be pe people like you who straddle the world between med peds that you're going to give your 14 year olds this. And then you're right that herd immunity, which is a very important concept, you know, has to be, it really does not require 100% of the population to be immune. It, it requires, I mean, there's some models that say 60%. I would say the safest way to think of it is 70%. And so between all those people that fit into phase 1A, B, C, and 2, and then between the fact that children may have gotten it and got some immunity, and then between the fact that a teacher is actually teaching a child that she her, or he herself is immune, I think we will get to herd immunity by the time we get to phase two. And I'm not worried that we have to go out and do little children. Um, but it's a great question for the pediatric world. It's a great question. Perfect. And then, Molly, um, how how are we with this being... Uh, yeah, your baby is, is, I think we've, we I mean, we've covered a ton. This has been great. I, I would love if we have time to spend just a little bit of time on the ethics. And you kind of open that up with talking about the tiers for distribution. Um, and I, I know that a lot of people went into thinking about how to decide those tiers. And it just seems like an incredibly complicated thing of how actually that's going to happen in practice. And, you know, does that make the most sense in terms of keeping the, the highest number of people safe? Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts about the tiers or just insights that we might need to know. I mean, that day when they released the tiers, which was, you know, the, 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 the Sunday after authorization occurred for the Moderna, is I could not think of anything else the whole day because I puzzled and puzzled and thought about them. And I have to say that I really liked them. And the reason is that the CDC clearly put out a very strong principle at the beginning of the slide set that they put out about the tiers that said, we are going for both protecting the vulnerable and getting society functioning again. And those are the two hardest things going on right now is that older people are susceptible to severe outcomes and so are people with comorbidities, but society not functioning right now and children not being in school is getting increasingly impossible um, for just this much time out of learning and so forth. And so it was quite a surprise um, and not known ahead of time that they put teachers um, and educators in phase 1B, which should theoretically start as soon as, and let's admit it, we have had a slower vaccine rollout than we should have, um, but we'll theoretically start at the end of January. And that is kind of an amazing concept to get children back to school. And yes, then where the criticism came in is, well, wait, I'm 74. Like I'm, I have to wait till 1C when 75, where's this arbitrary cutoff of not being 65? I thought that was all the older people were going to be um, put into phase 1B. But the way I thought of it is you can't actually do anything that's perfect. 
There's never a right way to do things. And I believe that society not functioning, grocery store clerks being at risk or meat processing plant workers or agriculture workers or children not being in school, a lot of that is uh, really difficult and scary for them. And so um, I, I kind of liked it. I, I actually liked it. And I know it's not perfect. And I probably would have tweaked the ages and gone down lower, but it's hard for me to criticize people who are making such complex decisions. And but of course, you could go really fast. Um, if we had a different country, you could go really fast and you could get to one C really quickly, uh, AKA Israel. Um, and so we, we need to go faster. And that means, you know, I think when we, when you really think about like sort of the capitalism, how cap, I mean, I just, just to make a comment about capitalism, I think it, it failed us with our public health response because we didn't pay people to stay at home. So people had to go and work. Then it really benefited us in terms of two vaccines. One thing to give credit for is the public-private partnership of Operation Warp Speed, which was, um, you know, which really was an impetus. There was a lot of money put into it. So that was a good thing for capitalism. But third thing about capitalism is that once people have gotten the CEOs and stock options and people have gotten money, it didn't actually incentivize anyone getting into the arms of people. And we're so decentralized in this country with our healthcare, which we really saw during this pandemic, that we don't have this some central system to just decide how to like do mass vaccination campaigns. How are people supposed to find out if they don't have any insurance, how they get their vaccine? How do they, uh, we can understand that if you do have insurance, you can call your doctor's office and say, do you have it? Do you have it yet? But what about people who are uninsured or underinsured? And so we really need now departments of public health to think about mass vaccination campaigns for their undocumented immigrants, for underinsurers, for Medi-Cal, for Medicare, the, the ones that DPHs are responsible for. And I'm envisioning these parks in, in San Francisco. I'm envisioning convention centers in Chicago, um, big spaces where you like go in like you were voting. Um, so we can use voter registration for those who are documented. Go in, um, get logged in, say why you're in 1B and um, go in and get your shot and then maybe wait, wait 15 minutes if there's any question and then go away. Can I, I, I love that. that. That sounds great. That sounds like a utopia. Can I, can I ask about the pre-existing conditions? I remember sort of early on in the course, there's a lot of hay made about obesity being a risk factor and things kind of surprised us like chronic kidney disease seem to be disproportionately affected. So what, what pre-existing conditions are they looking at that will actually put you into sort of the, the faster track? That's a great question because they haven't actually specified that exactly. So if you look at another CDC webpage and look at, quote, conditions that increase your susceptibility to COVID-19, it's some of these that you named, but some of them I don't think do. So for example, um, like you said, COPD, uh, heart disease, chronic kidney disease, like you said, came out, diabetes, obesity, but then, and then hypertension to a certain extent. But then on that list, unfortunately, was having ever smoked. And, you know, I mean, say you smoked like, you know, like in college, like, I mean, I, I'm concerned that, that people can get around the rules that I am susceptible. Uh, my patient, uh, yeah, I'm going to write a little note for them that they really need this because they smoked. So I think by the time that we get to 1C, which is again, when the 16 to 64 year olds get um, with susceptibilities, get to get it first, I would really try to, um, I hope the CDC will put out a very clean list about what qualifies you. Cancer should be on that list. Chemotherapy and receiving chemotherapy should be on that list. But asthma hasn't come out clearly as a risk factor and neither has just the fact that you smoked. I mean, you have to have COPD from your smoking 
to get to that list. So I hope that gets honed. Right now, it's a little too vague. Or there'll be like seven people left at the end. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I keep on thinking that. Like, like it, it's not as if like sub 20-year-old is not going to go get it and say they have something, right? Like, I mean, right. and that's, I mean, so maybe 1C is going to be more of a free-for-all, but um, it, it may. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see. That's why we need mass vaccination campaigns. Do you have any sense of where that timeline's looking right now? Like when those 1C people might anticipate, like is it March, April or more like May, June? Well, so the way the CDC put it out, um, and this was again on December 16th, it looked amazingly fast. It looked like we'd be done with phase 1A, which is healthcare workers by mid-January, five weeks. And then we'd start on 1B and then we'd be done with that by mid-February and we'd launch right into 1C. Like it looked so fast. I think that this audience is aware that now all the reports are on how we are not moving as fast as we thought we should. Uh, I think there's 1.7 million doses in California and 450,000 shots have been given out as of yesterday. That is simply not fast enough with the uh, with what our supply is. So um, we are struggling with the logistics of our kind of fractured healthcare system, I think. And we got to be get super creative and innovative and we got to get these out faster. So at least by the, the CDC timeline, we were going to be done by July for phase two. And I meant like done, like phase one C would have taken a long time. So it would have taken from March to June and then we would have done phase two and we would have been done. But um, it's going to take longer if we go at this rate. So I hope hope we can think creatively and go faster. Because the vaccines are there. The, the, the government bought the doses. We have the vaccines. There's not, there's actually not an issue there. We have them. I'm sorry if we missed this, but do we have, so let's assume everything's going to go perfectly from here on out, um, because by all accounts, I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Um, but do we, do we have a sense of how long the vaccines will provide immunity? Like, do, are we expecting waning? Are we going to need boosters later on? Does anyone have any idea? Or are we just going to have to sort of play it by ear? Okay, so I think... My personal feeling, and I've really looked at the immunity literature, is that it's going to last at least five years. Now, maybe even 10. Now, again, that's sort of extrapolation for what curves look like, like when you see waning T-cell responses. And so right now, um, it's true that we've only followed out people for, say, like longest six to nine months, and we're seeing, still seeing good immunity. And then we're extrapolating that it's going to be five to 10 years. Do I think that we're going to have to have boosters in the future? Maybe, um, maybe like five years from now, but I don't think it's, it's never going to be a yearly vaccine. Why? Because the only yearly vaccine that you ever get has a unique property, um, which is that it has these two little spiky proteins, the influenza virus, um, H and N, and they change all the time. And the only reason that we give, you know, repeat vaccinations is we have to figure out what strains are circulating at the time. That's not true of coronavirus. It is true that there is mutations happening. It's not like this hasn't been in the news. Um, and there are like three, I mean, one that didn't get as much attention, but the D614G mutation occurred over the summer that made the virus more transmissible. Then there's this UK variant, B117, that is um, seems like maybe up to 60% more transmissible because it causes higher viral loads in your nose. And then there's this South African variant. Luckily, I do not think these variants so far are going to affect the efficacy of the vaccine, though I don't know the South African one we have to watch. Why? At least the B117, which is the predominant strain in the UK right now and came to Colorado and then California and is going to be here. It's it's just a single mutation in the codon and the mRNA 
that you put in the body is quite a big chunk and it uh, it um it makes your body produce quite a bit of the protein and it doesn't span that codon and so um Pfizer very clearly say, you know, we we it's a proprietary information clearly we don't know exactly where the mRNA is but the Pfizer and Moderna CEOs came out and said we really do not think that um and they have to know we really do not think that the efficacy of these vaccines will be reduced by this UK variant but it speaks to the rapidity about which we have to get these out because if now we have something more transmissible, which let's admit it, like it seems like something's more transmissible because this surge has been so much faster, um, we need to get these out because herd immunity, all it means is that the virus is looking around and it can't find anyone else to infect or it, it, it takes it a long time to find anyone to infect. That is the state we need to get there. <laughs> so um yeah, I, I I think it's it's going to be every five or ten years, and maybe that maybe we'll eradicate it altogether, and we'll um, and we won't need more vac- uh, boosters. That will remain to be seen. Well, this has been great. Do you have any other questions, Chris or Paul? Oh. Uh- well, I just have one last question, and sort of, I I like to usually end episodes with uh, sort of like a a, a future looking what things are what are the cool things in the future, especially with like these mRNA vaccines. Are we going to see now that we've seen good you know, possibly great efficacy on COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, um, will we see like other coronaviruses like the common cold or HIV or, you know, tons of other viruses? I mean, has this opened the door to just like a, a new way of combating viruses and in- infection? I think it could. I really think it could. So common cold, you know, that's kind of like the C- some companies going to have to invest in that because people don't care about that. But um, HIV is the one that I'm most intrigued by. And that happens to be my interest because I'm an HIV doctor. Um, we've been trying to develop a vaccine for HIV because Tony Fauci is the person who happened to be in charge of that. Um, and so he's been looking for a vaccine elusively for 25 years. He, he personally, his lab actually works on this. Um, and um they've just all failed and no one's ever tried an mRNA vaccine for HIV. So that was like one of the first things that came out last week. Someone's like, oh, I'm going to try this. <laughs> so I, I think HIV is the one I'm most excited about. I don't know about, you know, there was a nature paper in 2018 that they tried it for influenza, rabies. I mean, it would work for all of these things. And probably we may be able to refine, you know, make better some of our vaccines that don't work very well. Maybe someone should take a look at influenza sometime because just getting it every year is a problem. So maybe maybe it will be looked at for influenza. So influenza and, and HIV are the two that I would vote for. All right. Well, Monica, this has been tremendously helpful, like fascinating. I could probably hear about this for another two hours, but we won't trap you here. I'm wondering if you could give us maybe a few take-home points for our listeners, so the, the really important takeaways from uh, what we talked about tonight. I think my takeaways are that these vaccines, um, at least the mRNA vaccines, have effectiveness, and I'm using that word because it was one outcome, um, beyond my wildest dreams. I did not think that we'd have 95% effectiveness. I thought it would be 70%. Um, and that this this is these are very highly effective vaccines against one of the most important things that can happen, which is getting sick. So I'm really excited about these vaccines. I think they're going to work, and I think they're going to work well, and I think they're going to give durable immunity. Number two is that they just mechanistically, there's not anything about them that's scary or scientifically sci-fi or anything that, you know, I would worry about having long-term side effects in the future. They just, scientifically, I think they're going to be very safe. And uh, three, I would, as internists, um, you know, my biggest goal would be to reassure patients that, 
so sorry it's not here yet for you, but but as soon as it is, I'm going to let you know because I, I think these are wonderful vaccines. And then four is um, whether there's a delay between the first and second dose or not, um, both doses have to be given. Great. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. All right. <laughs> we'll take it. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Molly Hoiblein, and especially our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov on our website, and Chris the Chumanchu, actually, that's me, on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Chris. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at thecurbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoiblein. And I would be remiss if I did not thank the great Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you're doubtless hearing behind us. I would also like to thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio, uh, heroic work as always. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. heroic work as always. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.